On today's episode, I have quite the guest. His name is Max Frenzel. He is a quantum theorist turned AI researcher. He's also a coffee geek, popular writer on the platform Medium, and a beat maker. In fact, he has been using deep learning artificial intelligence to help him create electronic music. It's just crazy to me. It's cool stuff, and here is a small sample for you to hear. Aside from me geeking out about him using AI to make music, I value Max because he deeply values rest and time off. He wrote an article on Medium that is titled, In Praise of Deep Work, Full Disconnectivity, and Deliberate Rest. The article is brilliant and it provided a lot of science to back up why rest and time off is important. Given that Max is a scientist, he did an amazing job of coming up with credible sources backing up why rest and time off is essential for us to do better work. I was eager to talk to Max after reading his article and he made time to chat. We discuss how Max wrote his PhD thesis on a Greek island, how AI has the potential to become our creative sidekick and restful habits that we can all implement starting tomorrow. Now for our conversation. I'm excited to talk about a number of things. Me too. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting, how I found out about you is I'm in the middle of a online course for machine learning used for oh, cool. musicians and visual artists. And we're constantly challenged to look for practitioners and some of their, you know, ideas or research papers that are out there. And I just came across one of your, one of your posts and, and then I was like, Oh, I really like the way that this person thinks. And then kind of went down your library on medium and then found a post uh, around a topic that I, I value very much and that. And that was rest. So it's very interesting. This, yeah. The synchronicity is very, very interesting to me. What cause was that? Yeah. So I'm still, I'm still taking it. It's, it's through a platform called Cadenzi. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's, I've always tried to, if there's a technology that I'm excited about from a product perspective, I just try to go in and tinker in, in any way I can to, to understand it, to A, be able to speak the same taxonomy with engineers, but also just to really change the way I think. Yeah, that's cool. Absolutely. I'm kind of the same. I actually also signed up for the Cadenzi course, but never really followed through. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we can go ahead and dive in if, you, if you'd like. I've got a number. Sure, of- absolutely. I'm going to just spitball this just because there's sure. so, so much to talk about. Max, I found one of your medium post about the value of rest particularly associated to 
deep work. Mm-hmm. And you're a writer that has a lot of great thoughts online. But that was one of the posts of yours that really resonated with me. In fact, I was like, all right, I should maybe hang the towel up with uh, pot, this podcast because this post summarizes <laughs> everything I hope to. <laughs> Please don't, because over the short time that I've known your podcast, I've actually become a huge fan. I think what you're building there is amazing. So please do not give up. I've failed a lot of times to have some intellectual ammunition for making my points of people taking more time off to people that are against it. (laughs) And I I thought that there was some very practical references of studies, science, and anecdotes in there that can contribute towards a healthy debate. So it's funny that you say that because that was actually exactly the reason why I started writing this piece. So Actually, also, that you think it's really good. It's like it was literally the first piece I ever wrote. Um, well, I mean, I've written stuff before, but nothing that was meant for the public, nothing long. So it was really my first ever kind of long form piece I put up. And I mean, I didn't expect anything except for like a few friends reading it, but I got really kind of good um, responses to it. And it's really amazing what's happened since then. But yeah, it's really been exactly the same kind of intention. I also really like. I've been believing in this for a long time, that rest is really important. Taking time off really helps with productivity. But I was always struggling to kind of really put it in words. And I mean, I hope it doesn't become too obvious during this uh, podcast to you and your listeners. I'm much better at expressing my thoughts clearly in writing than during conversation. So just kind of putting it into writing for me was a way to like, okay, just get everything straight, kind of get the facts right as well, do some research in the background, kind of, okay, actually get this, as you said, intellectual ammunition in a way. And then really just get it on paper and just kind of organize my thoughts clearly. That was kind of my main intention behind this. So it was actually more piece I just kind of wrote for myself to get my thinking straight. So yeah, that's how this all started actually. Since you've been valuing rest for a long time, can you talk about some epiphanies where you realize that it is important? Sure, absolutely. Um, So it's kind of interesting, actually. I think I was extremely lucky. Um, I did my PhD in a group. So I did my PhD in quantum information theory in London. And I was extremely lucky with my supervisors. They really kind of allowed me all the freedom I wanted to have. So basically, I could be for months on end in a different country. No one cared. I didn't even have to like say anything in advance. As long as I kind of got my research done, as long as I had kind of goals um, set for myself and also delivered on them, it didn't matter where I was, when I did my work, um, and so on. And during that time, I just kind of really developed my own style of working. Like I usually did my best work between, at that time, kind of 8 p.m. and midnight. That was actually the time I was most effective. And I rarely got up before like 10 or 11 in the morning. So just having this freedom, I really, I didn't actually spend all that much time working, maybe four hours a day especially not in the office, like I rarely even went into university, only if there was a reason for, say, meetings or a talk I wanted to see. And yeah, I just kind of could really do what I wanted. Then after finishing my PhD, I kind of, well, started working a more normal, well, nine to five, so to speak. And after a while, I just realized, like, I felt extremely unproductive and uncreative. Um, But it actually took me a holiday to really realize that. So while I was working, everything seemed fine. But then I really took an extended holiday, kind of just traveling through the countryside here in Japan. 
Um, and during that time, it really, really struck me, hey, something's off. I really feel extremely unproductive um, and uncreative. I've never felt that unproductive before, actually. What's going on? And that's really kind of where it hit me. Oh, it's actually that fact that I can't really, A, have enough kind of time to just rest and do nothing, and also really structure days in the way I want to structure them. And there's also this constant distraction from email, kind of attention, attention switching due to Slack. All these little things I kind of realized were adding up and really causing me to feel kind of busier than ever and at the same time less productive than ever. ever. And yeah, that's kind of when I really started to think about this topic in a more kind of, well, formal way and really started reading about it. And yeah, also then eventually writing about it. Hmm. You know, that reminds me of a guest on the podcast was a designer from Basecamp named Jonas. Mm. And he made an interesting point that I'd not considered yet. And he was saying that most people won't value rest until they reach a breaking point. And not that you had (laughs) this crisis happen, but you did have a unique period of time where you were able to to really have looked at it objectively and notice there is a problem or I'm not doing enough of, of one thing. And I've certainly, what led me down this path was sort of a force function as well of, okay, that, that concept of work hard and then eventually success comes kept proving incorrect over and over till I said, all right, there's something off here. And, and so in your, in your place too, having that time away, was allowed you to see that clearly. Yeah, exactly. And I think I was lucky because I knew what it meant to have this freedom because I had it for three years during my PhD. I think a lot of people don't even realize what like can be done, like how productive you can be um, because you're just so used to doing the standard kind of busy, busy, busy. And yeah, you never know that there's actually an alternative. So we're going to take a quick little side turn down a one-way street. Let's talk about this PhD. So you said... Quantum information systems, did I just butcher that? Quantum information theory, close enough. Okay. Can you help? Imagine I'm a nine-year-old. Can you, can you sure. explain that to me? Um, so the most simple way, kind of the most well, well-known subtopic of that is probably uh, quantum computing. So I'm sure you've heard of that. It's basically, sure. well, how do you use kind of stuff like quantum entanglement to build computers and to solve certain problems better than you can with classic computers. I was kind of focusing on a slightly different subtopic, uh, quantum thermodynamics. So thermodynamics is basically the study of kind of heat and work and how do you convert energy into different forms. Um, And it all starts kind of going really weird once you get down to the quantum scale. So yeah, I was looking at things like, what's the smallest engine you could theoretically build and it is really really tiny like you could even build an engine within a single atom in a way and there's stuff where you can convert information into energy once you get to quantum level also one thing i was kind of interested in for a while was the role of time at those kind of like microscopic scales so if you run an engine there's always some time component involved because something needs to change over time so you basically have to have an inbuilt clock in those quantum engines the thing is, like, once this clock gets to a quantum scale as well, all sorts of weird things start to happen, like time starts getting fuzzy and you have to kind of stabilize the clock. And yeah, those were the kind of problems I was dealing with back then. But I've completely left physics since then. Well, thank you for that. That's, that's helpful. And I'm deeply fascinated. Correct me if I'm wrong. One way that I've 
come to understand the difference between traditional computing and the horizon of quantum computing is most of all logic and all computing as we know it today solves through binary code, uh, ones and zeros. Yep. And in quantum computing, it solves one and zero at the same time? Yeah, in a very, very hand-wavy way. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. If you're really interested in that, like my former PhD supervisor wrote a really nice book on that. Uh, it's called, I think, Q is for Quantum. Okay. And it's really aimed, like his goal was actually to explain these really complicated things like quantum computing to kind of high school level, yeah, high school students, essentially. That's and I think he did a pretty amazing job. I would actually wished I had that book during my PhD, because even though it's aimed at this kind of like very, I don't know, young age and kind of non-technical level it really gets you thinking and thinking in a different way so i really recommend that max a phd and writing your paper is no walk in the park we're not talking about buzzfeed clickbait here that you're writing <laughs> it's it's real amazing deep work that has to be performed and i recall in your article that you mentioned unlike P other PhD students, and I agree with you because I've known several in my friend group that go down that path, that some of them talk about this miserable, absolute sacrifice moment in time that they had to just muster to finish, whereas you enjoyed it and had some leisure and time off and rest. Can you talk about that a bit? So... I basically decided there was no reason for me to stay in London um, because, I mean, I did my work basically pen and paper and computer. So I didn't have to be there for experiments or anything like that. And was kind of inspired by a lot of the stuff uh, Tim Ferriss has done and written about. I essentially decided to kind of really go completely remote, isolate myself and really focus on the writing. So I put up an adword, uh, advert on Upwork, um, basically saying, hey, I'm looking for someone to find me some kind of remote uh, house or remote flat somewhere in Greece or Croatia. I was, I want to kind of go in this area. I've never been there. I thought it would be beautiful and it turned out to be beautiful. But I essentially put that advert up. A Greek girl responded. She was amazing. She really helped me a lot. I think I paid her 50 euros and she saved me so much in trouble. And I really had an amazing experience thanks to her. She found me a little house on the Greek island of Syros. So I was in the mountains kind of overlooking this beautiful port. And I spent three months there writing my thesis. Well, actually, it only took me like, I think, four or five weeks to write the thesis itself. Um, but yeah, I spent yeah, three months there really enjoying my time, taking in a lot of time, just relaxing. So I usually got up kind of late in the morning, say around 10. I spent the morning just reading, meditating, I don't know, going running in the mountains, maybe going for a quick swim or something. And only kind of early afternoon, I would sit down for the first writing session and just kind of 90 minutes or so. But yeah, it really flowed very well. And then afternoon, I take again off for, I don't know, I really got into baking bread at the time. I was baking bread almost every day. Um, if you've never tried it, I really recommend it. It's one of the most therapeutical things I can imagine. It's almost kind of like meditation. It's something really beautiful. Seeing this kind of thing transform from just flour and water into this amazing finished result. Were you doing some of the traditional fermentation process with it? Oh, uh, no, I didn't get quite that fancy. I really want to get into that at some point as well, but just very kind of standard water, bread, yeast, let it sit for a while, knead it a few times, put it in the oven. So in a uh, way that was a meditation for you? Absolutely. No, just the whole process, kind of watching the thing develop. 
also just kind of actually treating the flower, kind of just kneading the thing. Um, it's really definitely kind of therapeutic and almost like meditation for me. I really still enjoyed doing that a lot. So you had this three-month period where one might objectively say you were completely kicking your shoes off, enjoying yourself, but you were actually shipping a, a really significant piece of work. And in today's modern society, I, I think a lot of people think that that's like those two things don't go hand in hand together. Yeah, people don't really realize this kind of like, if you're not busy, you can't be doing anything productive. But I think it's incredibly important. So there was this piece, I think in the 1920s, by Graham Wallace called The Art of Ford. And they was talking about these four stages of productivity. Um, so preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. Preparation is really the time where you sit down, actually do your stuff, kind of do your research, do your reading, do your actual kind of understanding of the problem. But then what's often really kind of ignored is this phase of incubation, illumination. So it's really, you need to kind of get some distance from the actual problem itself and really let your subconscious take over and kind of process the problem while you're doing something completely different, for example. And I think that's really what worked for me during my time on that Greek island. Like I spent, I don't know, maybe two or three 90-minute intervals every day, really focused on writing. But then in between, I completely detached from that. I completely focused on other things, really kind of, I don't know, relaxed or did some reading or even did a little bit of programming or something completely different that I was working on. Subconsciously, my mind was still processing all the writing I was doing. And then the next time I sat down, it just kind of flowed. I didn't really have to force it out. So I think that's what really worked for me. And I think this is completely overlooked, this kind of incubation stage and illumination stage. The thing is, it's very hard to quantify and you don't really feel busy. And you're also kind of worried, okay, what do other people think about me? It's kind of this, I don't know, this visible busyness is definitely not there. You look like you're slacking off, but it's absolutely not the case. I like how you also mentioned in your article that there's this often non-spoken truth that people are addicted just to the, the act of busyness because clicking a button, having inbox zero, all of these other things that can fill your entire day that might not move the needle forward, seem like you're shipping good work. Totally. Whereas this incubation phase, which, and correct me if I'm wrong, Max, has a lot to do with what I'll coin with the umbrella of the subconscious. Yeah. That is, that is working in the default mode network that yeah. is uh, working in overdrive. And what's interesting is those are things we can't feel. We don't get an immediate feedback mechanism from like that button in Slack or in your email exactly, or, or a to-do list. Um, and so maybe we can take some of these uh, atomic level computers and figure that one out to where we can actually <laughs> measure our subconscious working. But, you know, the subconscious delivers these amazing gifts when we least expect them. And that's, to me, the magic of them. Absolutely. I totally agree. Like, it's so easy to kind of feel productive when you just, I don't know, being busy, like, I don't know, group brainstorming, for example, is a wonderful example where you feel amazingly productive while often getting absolutely nothing done. This kind of idea of being in the office, um, you really kind of, I don't know, there's just this feeling, the subconscious feeling even, I have to look busy to actually get something done. That's actually why I really like working outside the office, working in a coffee shop or working at home. There's no one judging me and it's kind of like much more free. Okay, I'm just, I feel like 
taking a nap now would more be more productive than just I don't know scrolling down my Facebook feed by and looking productive. So yeah, I think kind of working remotely, there's a really a lot of value just from that side as well. Let's say we start a tech company tomorrow. If we were starting this this business from day one, what cultural principles around work and deep work would you hope to influence as a leader within the company? Totally. That's a very good and difficult question. I mean, you already talked uh, on your podcast with someone from Basecamp and Dave, to me, are actually really the model of kind of ideal work culture. I mean, sure, it's probably not perfect either, but um, it's getting as close to it as I've seen. So really kind of emulating <laughs> Basecamp, that would kind of be one of my goals, actually. I agree with you. You know, one one person that I would recommend looking up is a leader by the name of Ricardo Simler. Ricardo Simler. Yeah, I'll send you I'll send you a link afterwards. I'm currently in in the middle of trying to get in touch to have him on here, but he has a a TED Talk where he has built this massive company, I believe in Brazil. It's not a tech company, it's like a hardware and components company, mm-hmm. but it employs thousands of people and he has just led their culture with such radical ideas. Like, for example, as he says, the ultimate goal of management is to not have managers. Mm. For example, completely transparent spreadsheets on what everyone is paid. Right. Like transparency, mindfulness, yeah. and purpose is at the core of what they do. And it's not just something they say. It, it, they, they truly embody it and live it. And that's very inspiring to me. Yeah, no, that's interesting. You kind of set up this thought experiment with kind of companies focus on AI as well. So I really think that's kind of going to become extremely interesting uh, because AI will take over a lot of these kind of, I don't know, factory type jobs. And basically what's left to us as humans is really the empathy and humanness component. I think that's already really overlooked by a lot of companies. They kind of treat their employees with this carrot and stick approach and their customers with this very kind of narrow, okay, demographics-based approach, just kind of put them in categories. But I think like once AI is really becoming more and more common, there's a danger that more and more companies go even more into this very kind of, I don't know, lacking humanity, lacking humanness. Um, but then also there's really a lot of kind of upside for those who really embrace this human element and embrace this empathy both towards their employees and their customers. I think those companies, they will really thrive in the future. So I think that's going to be really exciting, actually. If you look at the education system, mm. traditional education system, let's say, there's, there's definitely some examples in Europe of people doing radically different things. But I'm, I'm here in the U.S. Let's look at the U.S. education system. You know, a lot of it, as well as the nine to five, was based off of this context that was decades ago of the industrial age, which right. was, in my estimations, really driven by the war effort. Yeah. And okay, got it. During that time, totally made sense. Does it make sense decades later? I don't think so. So what's interesting is it is all based on the concept of what people coin hard skills, mm. right? These, right. these specific things for each of us to do to be a cog in a larger system or a supply chain. And to your point, we now post information age, now getting to the automation age, are able to not only replicate, but create in, in your field, deep learning systems that can point at the inefficiencies of which we previously designed. Yeah. And not only is it 
can these systems replace the task in a time efficient manner, but safer and have a process of improving over time. So the need to go get these trade skills, these hard technical skills, they're, they're still important and those will always change, but th they become increasingly fleeting. Absolutely. And what was once called soft skills, things like empathy, curiosity, these human dynamics, these elements of creativity and the subconscious and practicing, committing and habit formation, all of these quote soft skills are in a way becoming the real skills of, of tomorrow if we are to collaborate and deepen our understanding of the cosmos and what we're here for uh, with, with the machines. Yeah, totally. So one thing I want the audience to be aware of is, so you, yes, got a PhD and that's great, but you're also a unique individual in that you are a practitioner and you, you work in the, in the field of artificial intelligence. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I'm trying to remember the quote. Maybe it was from Kevin Kelly. He mentioned one time that human beings are the guts of AI. And that, <laughs> I don't mean to sound morbid, but you know, we are designing these systems. Uh, they aren't designing themselves completely yet. But you, you help build these systems. So can you help shine a light on what you think and hope that the future looks like of our relationship with more and more automation? Yeah, so I know a lot of people are kind of worried about um, this future. And I think there's, it's good that some very smart people are worrying about these things. But I think in the short term, there's just so many benefits we can get from this. Um, really just kind of freeing us up to do the work that really, I don't know, makes us human um, just think about so many professions. Take a medical professional, for example. They waste so much of their time on administration, on kind of absolutely useless things in a way. And they have very, very little time actually understanding their patient. And really, it, again, it comes back to this empathy component. So, yeah, they have very little time really understanding the clients they're working with, their patients. It's also kind of creative components. So... I totally agree with what you said about kind of this factory and industrial revolution mentality and that it's completely outdated now. So it is less and less real factory jobs in a way. Um, and essentially what will be left in the future for us humans, I think, will be the really creative jobs because there's no way I see anytime soon as someone actually working in the field that um, AI will approach us in terms of empathy, emotional judgment, and creativity. So I think still for a very, very long time, those will be the things that we'll be uniquely suited to do. And hopefully, thanks to AI, we'll have more and more time to fully focus on these things. So that's the thing I'm really excited about. And it's kind of weird, like, I'm a scientist, and I think I'm a very rational person. But at the same time, I really think this kind of gut feeling and intuition are an extremely important component of like my decision-making process. There's actually a really interesting book uh, I read recently by John Kay, it's called Obliquity. And he points out this fact, I think he called it Franklin's Gambit after Ben Franklin. So if you look at so many companies, they try to rationalize all these things and really kind of going through the facts and consultants are also very amazing at this. Um, but essentially all they're just doing is building models that already confirm 
their well preconceptions and decisions they've made before. But they still rationalize that as much, much more well meaningful than just kind of feeling-based approaches or gut yeah, intuition-based approaches. So I think again, kind of in the future, we can leave this sort of model building kind of this very uh, quantitative analysis to the AI and then really use our humanity and our creativity to kind of confirm those things, uh, but really focus on this creative approach, this intuition-based approach, and so on. And I actually think kind of taking time off is, again, really important for building this intuition and kind of this gut feeling. I notice with myself, like if I'm stressed, if I'm busy, the signal-to-noise ratio is much uh, lower. Like I can't really trust my intuition much when I'm stressed out, when I'm busy all the time. I really need to take this time off to kind of get this sense back of like, hey, okay, I think it's this or it's that or something's not right here. So I really hope, again, kind of giving over some of this busy work to the AI we can reclaim some of that intuition for ourselves. Well, I'm excited about that reality to be here <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> so I also recall that you have been using some of the bleeding edge concepts in AI, particular area called deep learning, to work with it to make music. Is that correct? Yeah. That's correct. That's been a project I've been working on quite a bit recently. This is so cool. So this also takes an enormous amount of deep work because it's an emerging field. There's some things figured out, some are, are not figured out, and you have an end goal of creating music as a musician. Yeah. So what have you learned by taking AI, working with it to create music? Yeah, there's quite an interesting debate in kind of the community of, well, computational creativity. Can computers or can AI be creative? My take on it so far is no, it's not. Um, it's just an amazing tool we can use to discover new ways of kind of creative expression, really. So I'm not worried that um, AI is going to take over our creativity anytime soon. I'm much more excited about all the tools it allows us to kind of build around this. And that's kind of what I've been doing as well. I've been using AI to make all sorts of interesting sounds, kind of use it for sound design. But in the end, I'm still the one making the creative decisions and putting the final piece together. So there's no real reason um, to be worried at least not in the short term, that AI is kind of taking over this human component of creativity. We'll still be the curators. AI might kind of explore the space of all possible artworks, all possible musical pieces, but in the end, we'll still curate it, we'll still guide it, and we'll still in the end decide, okay, what's actually a good piece of art. And that's a beautiful way to look at it because in that point of view, AI is an ally. It's not... Totally an enemy that is trying to wedge and, yeah. and take over to your point, you're creating more instruments, which is more opportunities for expression. I mean, to me, it's ultimately just another tool. It's like another computer system um, that I can use in whatever ways I want. If something better comes around um, soon, then I'll switch to this other tool. At least for now, it's really not much more than that to me. With all of this deep work, that you have around some of these projects and some of your other AI research. It's been a while since you had that three month sabbatical where you wrote <laughs> the paper, which is a 
like to me, all caps, all bold definition of time off. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. But what what does time off look like for you right now? Like this week, how are you still mindfully practicing the art of time off? I might be a bit like a hypocrite there. Like since I published this article, I've been going through various kind of phases of more following what I'm actually preaching and less following what I'm preaching. So right now it's been a bit quite a busy time actually. Um, but still like recently just kind of taking a day trip into the mountains here around Tokyo. I live in Japan. Um, it's just kind of nice getting out of the city, going for a hike, just sitting there in the mountains with no phone, kind of drinking a beer there, looking at nature. That's nice. But yeah, there's also different things. Like, as you said, kind of my day job is in AI, but I also kind of on the side write and I do music and these kind of things. And a lot of people, when they hear rest, they kind of think, okay, just sitting on the beach, drinking cocktails or something. But that's really not it. I can't remember where that came from, but there's this kind of idea of four factors that are important for good rest. So relaxation is one of them. And that's kind of what most people usually just equate with rest. So it's really kind of just sitting on the beach, kind of lying on the couch or something. Um, but it's really much more to kind of getting good rest. So the other three factors are control. So you basically have well control over what you do, where you do it, when you do it, these sort of things. But then the really two other interesting things are one component, that's mastery. So you're actually practicing something where you kind of challenge almost so it kind of goes against what most people probably think of rest but actually having this challenge and really kind of trying to learn something new and develop new skills is actually really helpful for rest it's active rest i think you talked about it uh, with kevin kelly like this i really liked his idea of kind of variety as rest it's exactly the same for me like rest does not mean doing nothing it's really okay switching from one thing to another I can use this other thing as my rest for the first thing. And I really use this mastery component there. And then like the last of these four components is actually kind of comes back to the same thing. It's detachment. That's really important. Like kind of, okay, you're fully immersed in whatever you're doing, but then when you're not doing it, you're fully away from that. It's kind of this on off. It's like, I think a lot of people, me included, are very kind of in the middle. We're always sort of half on, half off. But if you can really manage to detach completely from whatever you're doing, either by really completely relaxing, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, it's like that has its time as well. But also by just doing something different that just takes your mind away from that other task, from your main work or whatever it is. I think that's incredibly valuable. I really enjoyed your interview with Kevin Kelly. Uh, and that, that Kevin kind of talked about this very project-based work. So really short bursts, very intense work, fully focused on one project. But then afterwards, actually taking some time off or working on a completely different project. And again, it kind of comes back to this incubation phase as well. So there's all these things, they kind of all very interrelated. You get detachment from one while you have detachment from that actually this incubation can happen and you really build on the experiences that you had there and you can use subconscious processes all the things that were happening so yeah i think that's really important kind of really not just thinking about relaxation but also kind of really challenging yourself during your rest rest takes discipline absolutely totally protect your time and i believe there was this architect or creative director uh, first name is Stefan. I'm probably going to butcher the last name. I think it's uh, Steigmeister, but he has a TED talk that really inspired. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, this podcast, which uh, his TED talk I highly recommend. It's called "The Power of Time Off," and in that presentation, he says, 
a really long sabbatical without a plan is a really bad idea. <laughs> and, and, he, and he makes a, a few funny points about how he had to learn that the hard way. But, to, you know, you do need to, in this, whatever you deem as rest and you take serious, you have to protect it. You have to be disciplined because it's very easy for today's modern information age world for things to just come flying at you and grab your attention yeah, and absolutely. pull you in. I, I like how you brought up this element of detachment. Time off can be totally accessible in small bite-sized approaches. And the one that I regularly use comes on most of our modern devices that we get internet work done with. And that can be your iPhone, iPad, a Google tablet, Android tablet, or any PC that you might have. And, and it, it's the equivalent of do not disturb mode. Like this is a simple click of a button that you can rid yourself of notifications, which literally their purpose is to <laughs> scream at you and get you from, they stop you from what it is you're, you're focused on and what you're doing. You can, yeah. you can shut them up. You can turn them off. And to me, you can commit to just like an hour of it. You'll be like, that was the longest hour I've ever experienced. <laughs> and then you, you mentioned one that I've been practicing often, which is to go on a walk or I go to the grocery store right. in my neighborhood and leave my phone. Like I, yeah. I do not go with the device and that too will, will add this depth to, to time. I found for myself and, and that little snack can become this little reward that you start getting convinced. You know what? I should be doing that more often at different scopes totally. and incorporate it in, into other parts of my life. Do you have any total beginner experiments if someone wants more rest but they just they don't think it's possible at all in today's age and with their jobs any any totally they could try it out tomorrow morning after listening to this yeah so i guess there's two things actually like kind of going back to what you just said about the walk as well i actually just published another article on this thing like there was a thought that came to me last week just going for an aimless stroll just kind of going randomly for a walk without any clear goal I realized kind of once I removed this goal from my walk, kind of my thoughts take on this kind of more open-ended nature as well. Like if I, for example, commute to work, like by walking, my thoughts will already be at work. I'm kind of rushing to get there. And similarly, my thoughts will be sort of rushed. If I just set out for say half an hour on a really random walk, I discover things that I haven't discovered before because I actually kind of actively look at my surroundings. But also within my thoughts, I really discover new things. There's again, this kind of incubation phase. Like if you don't have this clear goal to get towards, your mind is really kind of free to just find these little things that are lying around, piece them together, and then suddenly come up with these really creative insights. So I think that's one thing I'd recommend. Just go for a random walk. Don't have a goal other than getting back to where you started. And the other thing, I guess, just reclaim your mornings. Like if you're not doing it already, um, switch your phone on airplane mode at night and then don't switch it on again for at least like an hour or two after waking up. So you don't want to first thing in the morning go into this reactive mode and kind of problem solving emergency mode, um, especially like if there's emails or Slack messages, which you can't immediately resolve. That kind of leaves you in a terrible state for the rest of the day and you don't really get anything done. So yeah, those two things kind of go for a random walk and like, don't look at your phone, just keep it in airplane mode in the morning. I think those are very reasonable. They don't take too much commitment 
and the payoffs are pretty good. Fantastic ideas. So I'm going to throw out a curiosity that I haven't really asked anyone on the podcast. <laughs> All right, bring it on. You're a very mindful person working on some pretty insane technology that's going to shape the next century. Why are you working in AI? What, what good do you think it's going to create? At the end of the day, what's your purpose with all of this fantastic mm. work that you're doing? That's a very good question. Um, it's, like, <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really deep question. <laughs> right. So, I mean, after doing my PhD in physics, I kind of realized during that time, I mean, I did a startup during my PhD as well. And I realized purely academic research is not the thing I want to do. Um, there's so many other things out there. And at the time, and I still think that just deep learning and AI seemed like an amazing tool that can be applied to many, many different problems. And I essentially just wanted to understand this tool better and then figure out what kind of problems I want to apply it to. So there's actually another interesting thing I recently read, it's a book called Blue Ocean Shift. I think it's been quite popular. It's just a little side note, but they talked about um, technology innovation versus value innovation. So there's a lot of companies and kind of academia that's really this, it's very focused on technology innovation, but that alone doesn't really get you very far. It's not, at least commercially, doesn't get you very far. What you really have to think about is value innovation. So where do you get kind of value for your clients, for your well, customers, essentially. And again, it comes back to this empathy element. You really need to understand them, what do they want, um, and empathize with them. I really see this kind of deep learning and AI just as a tool to solve interesting problems and create value for people. I've not quite figured out where I really want to focus on kind of applying this tool. I mean, right now, I'm actually tending more and more towards computational creativity and really music as well. I think there's an amazing kind of opportunity right now uh, for someone with my particular skill set to do some really cool things. I'd be super happy if I could actually also apply it in the context of yeah, mindfulness, rest, um, allowing people to take time off. I don't have any clear ideas of working in that space yet, but yeah, please, if anyone has any good ideas, I'm more than happy to collaborate in that direction. Be careful what you ask for. I've got, I've got too many. I have an Evernote folder ready, ready for your observation. Well, <laughs> I'm happy to have a look at it. <laughs> to me, a lot of the stigma went away for deep learning when you posted like a very thorough look into your project of creating a song by leveraging some, some deep learning for the, for the instrument. Oh, thanks. Really happy to hear that. Yeah, it was incredible. And, and that led me to then go on my own tangential research and I found I believe it's a product of Google's AI DeepMind team it's called Magenta. Mm. Yeah Magenta they're doing an amazing job they kind of pioneered this whole thing of deep learning for creativity I mean they have a whole team really working on that full-time essentially and they have amazing resources behind it so they're doing some really really cool work but it's still a very small community and there's still a lot of uh, space to kind of make an impact. I know you're kind of getting interested in that topic as well. So I'm curious to see what are you going to come up with? <laughs> I'm most focused on challenging work culture and this whole soft skills becoming the, like the real skills. And, yeah. and you know, we, we don't have an information problem. We have a curation and commitment problem. Yeah. And, and so I think everyone knows 
when they want to improve themselves in their character, but they don't know where to begin because there's millions of podcasts. There's an endless shelf space of, of books and all that content is fantastic and entertaining. And I consume the heck out of all of it. But to me, I'm interested in how deep learning can help assess each one of us and come up with our ultimate uh, experiential education plan, if you will, right. of, of living the the knowledge that is recommended by these people we respect. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Kind of this information overload is a huge issue, and actually, in my day job, I'm mainly working on uh, natural language processing, actually, and kind of also the idea is there's so much data out there, but what matters to me is a very, very limited kind of subset of this kind of presenting people the right information at the right time that a can be really powerful and really free them to focus on the right things. But then there's this little bit of a concern, like how do you avoid building a bubble around this? Like how do you avoid kind of really just kind of getting served the information um, well, either you're looking for or kind of a, like that kind of just confirms your preconceptions already or just getting stuck in this filter bubble in a way. So mm. it's kind of really interesting challenge. Yeah. Like you said, there's tons of room in this field for more people to contribute. And just as Kevin Kelly said, work project diversity is important. I also think contributors yeah. to the field of AI diversity is very important too. Yeah. So the last question I have is something I've been recently doing and it is inspired by one of Tim Ferriss's questions he asked. He asked people if they could put a message on a billboard, what what would it say? I'm like, I'm going to one up him and I'm going to go for something more viral. So even though we are sort of against push notifications all the time, if, if you could draft a message that would show up as a push notification on all the devices in the world for you know, a large portion of humanity to see, what kind of message would you say uh, to them? That's a tricky question. I thought about that billboard question actually a lot when I listening to Tim Ferriss' podcast. I still haven't come up with my good answer. So this one is a tricky one too. <laughs> Switch your phone to airplane mode, turn off all notifications, something like that. There you go. It's actually interesting, like, so I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but here in Japan, we have this system where um, basically notifications can be pushed to your phone when there's some emergency, like an earthquake or something. So I wish we could actually hack that system and just kind of like have an alarm, switch off your phone, turn to airplane mode or something. <laughs> could be an interesting art project. Really appreciate you taking the time and I'm already convinced we have to do another episode at some point. Thanks for having me. And I know you're working on a book. Um, I'm really excited about that. Um, maybe if you want to go beyond that book, how about like a conference event, the time off summit? I mean, you're building an amazing kind of community here. Why not take it to the next step and bring all those people, both your guests and your listeners together at some kind of event. I'm sure that could be pretty cool if you want to help organizing it. <laughs> I will take any ideas or any contributions of of growing this movement because i think it's super important and ultimately impacts the level of intellectual output that these amazing homo sapiens have within them it's just a matter of you know taking the time away to to let it work absolutely special thanks to max i think it's rather amazing that someone 
of his stature and achievements has been able to find the values of rest. I know in the past, when I've thought about people that have written these unbelievable PhD thesis papers or AI programmers, I'm guilty of defaulting to think that these people don't sleep, they don't rest, they're just constantly in front of their computer typing away. But turns out that Max got some of his best work ever done while doing a rather relaxing schedule in Greece. And that's a powerful enough anecdote for me to be convinced that more time off is a good thing. I plan on having Max again on the show. I think he's just very interesting and has a lot of value to add to the stories I'm trying to tell. Thanks again for listening, and I wish you a restful rest of the week or weekend.